Bob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Paul Douse to the show. Paul is the founder of SIO Asset Management and an organizational asset management expert. We discuss asset management, why most organizational leaders focus on the short term, and why that short term focus results in mediocre performance. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com, and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. Also, if you like the show, please tell your colleagues about it and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Here's the interview with Paul Doust. Hey guys, we're back and I'm excited for this one. You know, I, I make this joke, but uh, I always I always make a joke that I needed to start recording about 30 minutes ago, but we jumped on the phone with Paul and and we had a good conversation for 30 minutes, but I didn't hit the record button. So now, now we're back. Paul, how are you? I'm doing well, Rob. <laughs> happy to be here thanks for inviting absolutely. me absolutely no no thanks for joining us and and so for everyone listening paul is the founder of sio asset management and if you want to check out his website go to sio s-c-i-o-a-m.com now paul before we dive into it why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself like how'd you get your start in asset management well, I've got um, about 30 years experience in um, industrial sectors, primarily power generation and oil and gas. But what I've learned, you know, there's universal principles that apply to all industrial sectors and, and many uh, infrastructure sectors as well. So I got my start uh, way back when um, commissioning um, a, a new power plant. And I got to tell you, as a green young engineer, it was the perfect learning environment. I had mentors there. Um, it was a well-run project. And, you know, I really got to understand how things worked. Um, so it was a, a fantastic experience. And, and once the plant was built, I, I kind of became a plant engineer. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot going on in terms of, you know, problems and capital and whatnot. So I turned my attention to developing maintenance programs and reliability programs. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a plant engineer, um, I did, I did projects. I, I moved on to, uh, to, um, Fort McMurray and oil sands, uh, after that and, you know, um, got my, uh, got some experience, um, managing reliability programs and, um, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, um, operational, uh, risk, um, um, maintenance, reliability, um, and then I, I, I moved to an organization in Calgary, um, and there I was the principal reliability engineer, and I did asset investment 
planning. Uh, more recently, I've developed uh, process safety programs and um, built operational management uh, systems or asset management systems for um, for organizations. And that's that's really what I'm focusing my my company on is. Um, um, supporting operational leaders right now. So, you know, I've got a, I've got a broad and very varied experience and, um, you know, I've tried to be a student of the game and um, look at problems from operational leaders perspectives and uh, come up with solutions um, that integrate, you know, maintenance, reliability and asset management best practice. Yeah. And one, and, you know, like one thing you mentioned before we, we started recording was about those operational leaders. And like, can you tell us, you know, you, you mentioned mediocrity as well. Do you want to tell us, like, why do we struggle at implementing best practices in reliability? I think, th- I think, well, first of all, you know, our operations, especially in these industrial sectors, is by its nature very complex. Right. And there's no there's no getting around that. So, you know, I, I, f- I feel I have a lot of empathy for operational leaders, um, you know, in the course of my career, in particular in the last 12 or so years, I've, I've really gone out of my way to understand well, what are the best practices, particularly in maintenance and reliability, but more broadly um, into kind of everything that, you know, is in operations and you know what, what I've realized is that you know us practitioners we can, we can come to our organizations and present these best practice and it might be the right thing to do but it's not it's clearly not solving all the operational leaders problems because if it did these best practices would be more readily um, adopted but you know it, it we end up you know, pushing a rope a lot of times in, in organizations trying to promote these best practices. Um, and, you know, I've concluded it's because it's not it's not squarely what these operational leaders are being asked to do. Um, and there's a, there's a variety of reasons for that. But, you know, a lot of it boils down to, you know, they're there to deliver the business results. Um, and they don't have a lot of time to do that. So, you know, I think timing is a big factor. You know, if they had a long enough runway, um, I think they'd be more willing to, you know, um, invest in their people's competencies and invest in, you know, developing these best practices um, and applying them to their important assets over a long period of time. But they, they just don't have that, you know, we, and we hear things like, oh, there's a, there's a short shelf life on, on, um, on leaders, um, um, positions. And I, I think to some extent that's true. It's not a great excuse, but, you know, I think that's a reality. I also think that, you know, these, these leaders, as they ascend in the organization, you know, we have to keep in mind that they have done very well in the current way of doing things, right? So they're not necessarily incented on changing things. Um, having said that, there's, there's always a few um, courageous leaders who really want to improve and 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 uh, make gains in the organization so you know um but you know that old style leader that command and control you know you hired me in this role to be um you know to bring my experience to bear and i'll make the decisions that you know those types of leaders are still out there um they're they're you know they're 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 becoming fewer um you know there's a new new style new class of leadership that's kind of taking over that's a bit more empathetic and, and a bit more 
progressive, if you will. Um, so, you know, the, the winds of change are, are blowing. But, you know, the other thing about leaders is, you know, eventually, inevitably, they get promoted to a position where they're accountable for f- functions within the business that are outside of their own core competencies. So they can't always rely on, um, you know, their own experience um, to manage. And, and, you know, that's true when you look at the 39 subjects of asset management, almost nobody um, has, you know, solid experience in each of them. So, you know, for these leaders, there's there can be a real competency gap. And, you know, they don't need to be experts in everything, but they need to understand what these best practices are um, if in, for no other reason than to ask intelligent questions of what's really going on in the organization. And, you know, what I've learned is the higher you go, you know, you get promoted into an organization, um, the, the more you're shielded from what's really going on because there's a tremendous amount of of energy spent on 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 being seen to be looking good right um you know i've, I've got the saying um everything's fine right nothing to see here you know that uh, for those people who have seen naked gun there's there's that scene of uh Leslie Nielsen standing in front and saying, nothing to see here, move along. And while behind them, there's fireworks going on, right? And explosions and stuff like that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of that that goes on. And it's really difficult for leaders to to really um, have a pulse on their organization. Um, and, you know, BS flows uphill, you know, um, unfortunately. Um, so they don't always get the real story. And, and do you think that, like that's a cultural problem or that's just because nobody wants to like everyone is somewhat insecure in their job and they don't want to really share what's actually happening above them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain amount of that. But, you know, for me, it all boils down to what what these leaders are being asked to do. Right. And 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 how they're being asked to deliver it, because, you know, I mean, you, you can. You can cut costs, you know, say where our OPEX is going to get cut by 10%. And, you know, um, very often that's, you know, a way of managing. And, you know, a lot I've observed that a lot of these mediocre organizations, for anybody who follows me on LinkedIn and some of my posts, I talk about mediocrity a lot. Um, because, you know, for me, it's important to talk about, you know, and recognize where we could and should be better. So, um but these, a lot of these organizations, their culture um, incents them to manage for cost, hope for performance, and accept risk. And you know, I've been I've been putting a few posts out there um, about the Boeing um, 737 Max um, stuff, and you know, that's a clear. It appears to be a clear. Um, instance of you know prior leadership prioritizing um, cost over over safety right which you know didn't align to their supposed organizational values but you know that's what happened right so in this instance it 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 looks like you know they 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 managed for cost right and they accepted risk and um, you know I'm not suggesting Boeing's a terrible company but in this instant instance it doesn't it's not a good look right but there's you know there's a lot of that type of behavior that's that's out there yeah and i mean in a lot of those cases we wouldn't even hear about it like let's say they were lucky like there is a potential that none of the planes could have crashed right 
Right. And that's the risk tolerance of the organization. So, you know, it's it's much harder to invest in your people and best practice over time and apply that to your important assets to earn a result, to earn the same 10% reduction in um, in costs. I mean, you can do it um, in a sustainable way, and but it takes longer, right? And, you know, um, you know I've, I've seen organizations that do have that, that timing, that runway. Um, you know, I, I, I met one fellow who, um, was, I would, I would say, um, top quartile, maybe even top decile organization. And, um, you know, he had five years to improve his productivity and productivity here is defined as, as spend per unit produced. And this is in power generation. So it would be spend per megawatt hour produced. Right. And, you know, he had, he had five years to get from his current level of productivity to a new level and he had a plan to get there. Right. And he had time and he was able to, you know, um, do what was necessary to manage that, you know, and I contrasted that to my own organization where, um, you know, I had just spoken to a, a plant manager who I had done some, some reliability work for, and, you know, they were forced to, to reduce their budget by 13%. And this is like November of, of, of the year. So the next the next budget year started in January. And this plant manager, you know, so I asked her, like, how are you going about doing this? And, you know, very reasonably, she said, uh, well, I'm looking at what I'm planning to do next year. And, and um, I'm deciding, you know, force ranking everything and deciding what I can, you know, defer or eliminate to get that 13% reduction. And I thought, well, like what else are you going to do, right? Because um, <laughs> you know she had to reduce the budget. But th- the point here is that she didn't have the runway, right? And she was forced to make what I would call some vicious decisions. She she wasn't able to do this virtuous, you know, go out and earn a thirteen percent reduction in in cost or maybe even an uptick uptick in performance. You know, she was just asked to do what she was told, right? She was doing what she was told. But you know, the the interesting contrast between those two organizations is one was managing quarter to quarter on their earnings, and the other one was managing for the longer term, right? And you know. The, the really interesting thing is the reason I was talking to this fellow, um, you know, and trying to understand, I, I was sent there to understand how they were able to operate um, at a lower cost base, right? And it was because they had a, a, a good management system and it was because they were able to earn those results over time, right? So, so you know, versus, you know, just managing for cost and hoping for performance, they were actually managing for performance, I think we see that everywhere. Like Amazon, I think it was on Wednesday, like a few days ago, they, they released their, uh, I believe it would be second quarter or maybe third quarter or earnings and their stock, like they missed earning. well, sorry, they missed earnings per share and their stock dipped like 7% in the after hours trading. And now, I mean, now it's back to kind of where it was before, but you just see that everybody and and it wasn't that Amazon, their earnings were bad. Their revenue actually was bigger than they expected <laughs> to be. It was just their costs were higher because they're investing for the future. 
Right. Well, you know, that's an area of research that I'm actually um, doing is, you know, how is the investment community uh, influencing these organizations at, at the C-suite level and, 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 and more from my area of interest, these operational leaders. And, you know, it, it's fascinating because I've, I've thought that and I've seen myself where, geez, sometimes the, you know, the, the stock price, it isn't actually very sensitive to how well the operations is being managed, right? And, you know, make no mistake, I believe with these asset intensive organizations, you know, heavy industrials and whatnot, that, you know, at the end of the day, over, over in the fullness of time, the organization will, will be measured on how well they manage their assets, right? It's not just about how well they, you know, the CFO's group functions, although that's important. Uh, I never dismiss the other corporate functions, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's how well you manage your assets. And it's fascinating to me because I, I, I think these, the, the, what gets encouraged is this short-termism and, and managing for quarterly earnings results or, or annual earnings results. And it, it forces these leaders to make decisions that lock in modest value for short-term and they give up a lot higher value um, that, you know, if they were had the ability to manage for the longer term, right? And I've, you know, I've talked to operational leaders and I've, I've just flat out asked some of them that I've kind of, you know, gotten to know and, and, and you know, have got mutual trust, you know, um, you know, I asked them like, have you ever been asked to kind of take short-term decisions where you're no, you know full well that you're giving up long-term value? And the answer comes back, yeah, all the time, right? So, you know, what I'm curious about, and, and this is the reason why I'm researching that area, is if these, if the investment community and even in-house, in the, in, you know, the, well, the board of directors and, and the C-suite, and if they knew how much value was being given up um, with these, you know, this short-termism and, and, and you know, driving the, towards mediocrity, if they knew how much was given up versus true operational excellence, and that's a very high bar to achieve, but you know there there is organizations that are there. If they knew how much value is being given up, I think they'd be much more willing to to um, um, drive for those longer term results and uh, stop doing so many short term um, thinking. Well, I mean, I, I sort of agree but then i also sort of sometimes you see that the the like upper upper management they're actually even more incentivized to short-term decisions because they're getting bonuses based off of quarterly results so even more than well on a larger scale than just your your you know your manager your gm or whatever right so they're making millions on a bonus versus you know, maybe maybe the difference is five grand for us. I think that can be true, but guess what? When you when you look at the annual reports and you know the investor day slide packs, that's not the message to to its shareholders, right? The message is, oh, we're we're we deliver long term value at you know moderate risk, and you know there's nothing in there that says you know we take 
we make short-term gains, right? Um, and and we give up long-term value. But you know that's what happens. And you know there was one instance. I'll oh, just quick little story here. You know um, my work with PMAC. I'm on I'm on the national board of directors there. Um, gives me an opportunity to talk to a lot of people in a lot of different organizations. And you know I was talking to one local energy company and. and a couple people from that organization were sharing with me how their maintenance work management practices were, you know, they, they they weren't that mature and they were struggling to improve. And not only that, the organization had made an acquisition. So they had the added complexity of, um, or complication, I guess, of, of integrating that culture with theirs. And, you know, it, it's not an uncommon story, right? So um, being really good at even basic work management is can be hard, right? Um, but you know, it, it was it was a good it was a good conversation. But when I when I left that and I was on my way home, I was thinking to myself, "Gee, they're not very mature, hey? I wonder what their what their uh, leadership is communicating to their to their shareholders, right?" And so I I went and I looked up their investor day pack and and their annual report. And sure enough, you know, it's exactly what I feared. There's operational excellence, this operational excellence, that. (laughs) And I'm like, really? Um, Look, if you don't have your basic maintenance work management humming along, chances are, chances of you being excellent and much else are pretty darn slim. Right. So, you know, I, I didn't know a lot else about the company, but, you know, um, you know, and it's, it's that kind of, where the where the messaging doesn't necessarily match the behavior that I'm interested in, right? I think I mean I think that there's a lot of that and I think that you know even even on the personal level, right? Like there are a lot of people who they say their goal is to do something and they're doing something completely different, right? Like I always make the analogy with organizations, I make the joke that a lot of them, they say they want to be world class in, in reliability. And what I always say is, I want to run the Boston Marathon under three hours, but I'm sitting on the couch eating potato chips, right? Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is strike the right balance between structure and discipline um, um, and, and being innovative and creative in, in earning those results, right? So, you know, um, what I'm really trying to offer these organizations is, is a, a framework, an operational management system that's, that's operationalized, right? So, you know, for me, an operational management system or an asset management system, I use those two terms kind of interchangeably. Um, you know, so what is a, what is a management system? You know, any management system is really only, it's very simple. It's only three things. It's say what you do, do what you say, and prove it, right? So it's being very deliberate about how you manage. And and what I've observed is, you know, while we've got no shortage of business processes and whatnot that we, we have difficulty following, there's still, especially at the leadership level, there's an incredible amount of what I call um, um, custom and practice, um, um, and, and custom is is that undocumented behaviors, right? Um, and it's a phrase I, I heard when I was I did some work in the UK, and you know people over there have have a wonderful way with the English language, and you know that custom and practice. What they really meant is you know this is what really happens, and this is the this is the behavior that's really going on besides everything that's kind of written down in your in your you know policies, your standards, your business processes, and your procedures, right? 
And, um, you know, it's fascinating to me, um, some of the, the culture and the behaviors that kind of go on that are undocumented. Yeah. And I, and to me, I always, I even see that kind of, you know, in some of the positions I've been in where, you know, we're working at a centralized office and we're trying to look at practices that are happening at, at the various plants. And I always think that there's a, there's a big value to going out and walking around, seeing what's actually happening, talking to the guys. And, but I, but I've also seen the opposite where, you know, sometimes when the plant management is, is, you know, scheduled a a shop tour or something that there's people running around the day before cleaning up and everything looks nice, spick and spick and span and tidy before the, the CEO walks through. Now, like how, how would you see that looking or like, how would you recommend the kind of the leaders or even, even people who are in centralized asset management roles, like how should they go about actually learning what's happening? Well, you need to, you need to engage with the with the people closest to the assets, right? So the operators in the in the control room, you know, the maintenance folks on the floor, the engineers, um, you know, at site, and you need to you need to include them in the conversation, right? Because you know they're the ones who really go know what's going on, and these are the these are the people who are feeling the pain and the frustrations of you know, having to cope with a lot of stuff and, you know, they don't want to be force fed um, stuff from sent from corporate head office. And, you know, in my career, I've, I've been on both sides of that. Right. So I've been, I've been, you know, on the plant floor and I've also been in the, in the corporate and office and, you know, it it takes teamwork. Right. So as a leader, what I would do is I, I would, I would create teams, and I would make sure that um, these teams are jointly accountable for doing what you said you'd do, right? And um, if, if you do what you say you're going to do and it's the, it's the right thing to do, um, you'll get value out of that, right? And, of course, there's ways to measure this and, and whatnot um, um, without getting too cute because there's some dangers in, in, in measuring. And, you know, if, 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 you, if you set targets and quotas on the measures – then, you know, it becomes about the measures and, and not about the behaviors and the practices that get you the results that you want. Um, but, you know, for me, as a, as a, as an operational leader, I would be inclined to, um, you know, as an example, um, because, uh, you know, between operations, maintenance, and, um, and, and engineering as, as functions, you know, they all need to work together. And, and while operations kind of sees the present, the day-to-day stuff, you know, they're working hour to hour, shift to shift. Um, maintenance, some would argue are kind of looking backwards They're They, they know where all the pain points have been and they're trying to, you know, head that off from happening again. Of course, engineering um, one could argue is looking out into the future of all the risks that are coming that maybe haven't been experienced before. That's an oversimplification of course, but you know what the point there is there's three valid perspectives and they're each different, right? And it's, it's, it's important to kind of get those perspectives together, right? So, you know, and when you look forward into deciding what's the best thing to do, you know, if you put, you know, if you think of asset performance, there's three components to it. There's the cost and let's put 
maintenance in charge of that, uh, which they are, but um, let's put operations in charge of the performance and let's put engineering in charge of the risk. And that doesn't mean that that's their only thing. My point is that together, those three functions need to represent those um, together um, such that you get the best outcome possible, right? Because very often I see we're managing costs and, and giving up, not having performance in the same conversation, right? Or, you know, um, we're talking about risks, but we really don't put our business hats on and say, how is this going to uh, affect the, the you know, near-term costs and or performance, right? And for me, it's important to think about all three things simultaneously, right? And so, you know, I would set up teams that are accountable for that, right? And uh, make that part of the practice and the, whether it's business planning or, you know, dealing with, you know, root cause analysis, um, stuff, you know, events that have already taken place. Uh, I think, you know, my style is very integrative and collaborative. And, you know, I, I see some organizations where it's very much, you know, stay in your lane. You know, you're responsible for this narrow kind of piece of it. And we don't collaborate and we don't share and we don't learn from each other because, um, you know, everybody's everybody at site, they're they're doing the best given what they they've got to work with. Right. So, you know, give them more to work with and they'll you, you'll get a better result. And, and part of that answer is to see and to work together with diverse um, um, perspectives. Yeah, I really love that. Now, when I had Joe Kuhn on the podcast, it would have been about maybe at this point when you're listening to it, it would be maybe probably six weeks ago or so. So Joe, he was a plant manager, and, and one of the things he was saying, we it was kind of about that, you know, if you're going to have a reliability initiative and you're trying to sell it to a plant manager, you really need to make sure that it has not only long-term value but also short-term value so then they have that justification where they can hit their their numbers in the short term. Now, one thing I I still haven't sort of figured out, and I'd like like to get your thoughts on it, is how is there a way to get short-term value from asset management? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's natural for everyone to kind of want that, those, you know, quick wins and, and the low hanging fruit and, and where that exists, you know, by all means, <laughs> capture that first. Um, but, you know, some of this is just hard and long work, right? It's not the path of easiest, of least resistance, right? Some of it's, some of it's hard earned over a longer period of time. Um, but you still, you need to have confidence. So for me, it boils down to confidence or is what we're doing. Um, well, first of all, are we going to, are we going to actually carry through on what we say we're going to do? And then secondly, is it going to have the desired effect? And, and for me, that boils down to confidence, right? And, um, you know, driving these short-term successes is very important, um, not just to earn that, those quick wins and the value, but, you know, to earn the confidence of the team and, and the leadership to be able to, you know, do bigger and better things as, as time goes on. But, you know, to, to the value point, I, I think it is important to recognize that, you know, the organization does need to kind of um, harvest value. Um, and I don't mean harvest, meaning, um, you know, run the equipment into the ground i mean i mean you know we're, we're here to 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 get value from our assets and y y if if you want to collect all the value too soon right away then you're probably going to give up long-term value but i've also seen the opposite where 
you know, um, you keep you keep trying to invest and and you keep spending and you, you never collect your value. And you need to collect the value as you go, but you need to make sure that you do it in such a way that that the full value is is or the value is maximized over the long period of time. Right. Because, you, you know, um, I, I've seen in an organization where a leader stood up and said, you know, if we did everything our engineers um, recommended, we'd go broke. And let me tell you, the engineers were not happy to hear that. But, you know, at the time, you know, I was I was in charge of investment planning. So capital allocation and I was my even though I was I had been an engineer, you know, I my thoughts were absolutely correct. These, these engineers, they weren't putting their, their business hats on. They were so worried about the future risk that they were willing to spend lots of money to avoid that. And if you kept doing that, you'd never actually reap any of the, of the value. Do you know what I mean? You, like if you just keep investing and investing and spending money, um, even if it's to do good things and you never reap the, that value, well, that's not good for the organization either, right? So it's, it's, this, um, it's this balance you know, um, and I, I hesitate in using that word because every time I hear the word balance, I right away think that, you know, okay, balance means compromise and it means you're suboptimal. And a lot of times that's true, but still at the end of the day, you need to, you need to be able to reap the benefits, um, but do it in such a way that it maximizes the value over time. And that's not easy to do. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty difficult. And I think that it also puts us in kind of a weird position, right? And, you know, like I come from kind of an economics background, and I always think that people, well, we've heard that people like to act within their own best interest. And whether that's true or not is not necessarily the case. But anyways, um, and but I always think that like when I'm looking at analyzing like why someone's making the decision they're making, usually I look at, what are their incentive structures and like what are they trying to do for themselves? And for me, yeah, and like for me, I see two two problems, right? One is upper management, typically by the time they get there, they're, they're kind of end of career. And so they're trying to maximize their short-term incentives, right? So they're trying to hit those numbers, get big bonus so then they can retire. The Also, the other end is, even from like my generation is like we switch jobs really often. And so if I'm thinking about 80 years from now or 100 years from now, like I don't, well, one is I'm going to be dead. So who cares? But the other thing is like, I'm probably going to be long in another career by that point. So what is the, like, where is that timeline? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I don't think there's any, real good answer to that um other than i guess i think almost everybody you know 95 percent of the people there's always five percent that you can't influence at least five maybe ten percent right and, and and you're right some of those people are what you described as what i call the t-minus plan right they don't give a crap because they're they're close to the to the to the to the goal line right um but the vast majority of people, I think, are just dying to be engaged um, and and to be working as a team um, for for something that's virtuous, right? So to solve the business challenge, and you know, very often I see 
organizations and leaders, you know, the behavior that I see, um, let me, let me back up a step. Very often, some leaders they they look at they look at a business challenge and and they're thinking on the margins and they say, okay, well we can't do that extra thing because you know we're so busy doing what we do already that you know I don't have the additional resources, I don't have the additional people, I don't have the additional money to to do anything different, and they kind of get themselves stuck right and and paralyzed. Um, but I happen to view it the other way like they're these leaders are directing vast resources of people and vast resources of money and you know there's an opportunity to reallocate those because in most organizations there's some activities that they do that are very valuable there's other activities they do that are not very valuable and you know it it's important to know the difference between the two right and to the extent that you can eliminate some of these low value activities, well, that frees up resources, you know, to do more virtuous things. Right. And, and for those leaders that can actually harness those people and those resources um, and, and, and make the business challenge a mission, right. And make it very visible and transparent and say, look, we need our productivity to go from this spend per per unit produced to that spend per unit produced. I think, I, I, I think, I think this is a challenge of, of society um, at large. Like people just want a connection. They want to be part of a t- team and they want to be part of something successful and they want to add value to that. And so very often, especially where there's a lot of short-termism, you, you fail to, to harness that energy um, of your organization. And, you know, the leaders end up shunting those people, right? So again, back to the 10% reduction in cost. Look, you don't need a lot of reliability engineers or whatever. If, if how you're going to behave is, is by cost cutting, and, you know, I guess that's where a lot of layoffs come in too. But um, the, the point is that your people are there to actually earn you value. So, you know, get the most out of these people. That's, you know, as I'm saying this, it sounds very trite, um, but, you know, it, it, it's obvious, but it's really hard to get the, the most out of people um, as, as a team. But I, I think there's, I think, I think people are yearning um, for that. People want to do more. People want to add value. It's, 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 it's natural. And, you know, when I look back over my career, you know, I tried to do what I was asked to do and, you know, I did some pretty interesting and challenging things, but, you know, I wasn't able to do everything that, you know, I thought got the most value. So, you know, was I an underutilized resource? I think so in a lot of cases, you know, I did some really good things. I was able to, you know, influence the organization to a certain degree, but you know, when I look back in it with a critical eye, could I have done more? And I I think the answer is yes. Yeah. I I think that's, I mean, I think that's super common. I also, you know, like from my personal experience, I, I definitely think as well. And there was one like through your, through that talk there, I was really just thinking, you know, I was thinking about, I was, I was watching some football earlier and I was thinking just about like how many coaches out there, like they put in their Eli Manning or Joe Flacco's of the world, um, the old, the old quarterback to get a win today in lieu of developing their younger quarterback for the future 
or like the other the other thing that that you were mentioning about utilizing your team to the fullest extent like how many teams out there and by how many teams i mean there's there's probably like the patriots and maybe the rams but everybody else doesn't they they adapt their game plan based on what their athletes can do like bill belichick has this saying about when he's recruiting players or looking at scouting players he looks at what can they do not what can't they do and so he looks at that and then he picks his players and then he adjusts his scheme to them yeah that's that's a great analogy and and certainly in in the coaching fraternity there's a, a large you know there's there's huge pressure to deliver right now and that's not bad behavior because they're there to get wins ultimately that's how success is measured but um you're right do they do they make decisions um, for the short term that give up long-term value perhaps but you know what's clear to me is you look at Bill Belichick Belichick he's got the way he manages he obviously has a system and a framework that is built for the long term and you know they're develop selecting and developing players that can step in and perform at the same level as you know somebody who goes down with injury and you know, I think that's been a huge key to success for for New England, right? So New England, you know, they, they've been the top. They don't get the highest draft picks. They've got the best management system, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, and the thing you were talking about, where it's like, if you're investing for the future, investing for the future, and you're never reaping the benefits. Like a prime example of that is the Philadelphia 76ers with the Sam Henke era where they lost for I don't know how many years in a row. And, I mean, it's starting to pay off now, but Sam Hinkie has been out of the NBA for a long time now. Mm. I don't know much about that situation. I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, we got to wrap up anyway. So, Paul, you know, I want to thank you for joining us. Now, Paul, before we before we finish up, do you have anything to plug? Like, obviously, people who are listening – they should check out your website, sioam.com. Do you want them to follow you on LinkedIn? Yeah, follow me on LinkedIn. I've got a I've got a CEO asset management page on LinkedIn um, as well, and I, I I've been a bit intermittent, but I've tried to put posts on um, not daily, but um, you know quite often. And so I'd appreciate if people give me a follow, and I love it when people give me feedback, um, good and bad. So please do that. Yeah, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. And um, I guess in terms of other plugs, I'll, I'll put a plug in for PMAC. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm on the board of directors, and um, there's some really exciting things coming um, that will be coming uh, out of PMAC in the next um, um, five years and even sooner, actually. But we've just polished, uh, uh, we're just polishing our um, new five-year plan and strategic plan, and there's some really exciting things in there. Um, one in particular that's just been announced um, through World Partners in Asset Management is a global standardized framework for uh, asset management accreditation and um, PMAX busy in the background um, uh, developing a competency framework that will align to that 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 accreditation scheme and so for me that's incredibly exciting because it's a global standard so PMAC is part of a network of groups like SMRP in the US and asset management council and in um, 
in Australia, as well as a bunch of other um, member countries uh, across the globe. And for the first time, you know, there, there will be a series of uh, credentials that are, are standardized across the globe. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be, um, you know, uh, a, a big um, impetus for, for individuals and um, for organizations to, to really develop their people, their asset management practitioners. And there's even, there's even a place for, for leadership uh, credentials in there as well. So, you know, I'm hoping that that's, um, it, it ends up, you know, being, being a tipping point where, you know, the, 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 emerging discipline of asset management gets formalized um, because, you know, it's, it's important for, for people and for organizations to, to invest in the competencies of their people um, and especially in a holistic fashion um, for, for the emerging discipline of asset management. So excited to see that um, come to fruition over the next um, year or two. Yeah, once you once you guys have that released, definitely let me know because we'll have maybe a couple of you back on and maybe talk about it. Yeah, I know we're going to be. I'm sure we're going to be doing a lot of marketing and um, you know um, an advocacy campaign around asset management in general. But more specifically, I think that um, this competency framework. I'm hoping that's really the one thing that organizations and individuals can grab onto and and um, you know really move the the discipline forward in a meaningful way. Yeah, I hope so too. Now, Paul. I gotta, we got to get you out of here so you can go and enjoy some, some football on this Sunday. So, Paul, I th- I, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And, and for everyone listening, you know, I appreciate you guys listening. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn for the daily meme. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.